First of all, I probably would have overheard the conversation she was pulled into with that circle of men in the Boomerang Club because it did become a little bit scandalous there in that moment. So I would have been watching that. I would have handed her a hip flask probably. <laughs> I've just immediately gone nicely handled and just hand her a hip flask. I think that's what I would have to, yeah, nicely handled. And um, yeah. I would I would offer to show her around London if I had any uh, insider tips and things like that. And really, I just want to be part of her girl gang. everyone to JCV Art Studio. My name is Joanna. I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. I had to think twice about that. <laughs> I'm operating on a little bit of sleep. We have a puppy. Yes. <laughs> His name is Pepper. And I forgot what it was like to have a puppy. <laughs> so anyways, he's adorable. And um, I am I'm amazed with animals because our oldest dog, that's 10, has taken on almost like a leadership role and he's protecting the house. And uh, when he gets tired of Pepper, he just kind of crawls over and lays on the other end of the sofa. But anyways, enough about that. So tolerant. (laughs) More tolerant than some people. (laughs) Anyways, so today... It's an honor to have internationally best-selling, award-winning author, Tara Moss, with me again. Um, And before I mention Tara's writing achievements, I want to acknowledge her work as an outspoken advocate for human rights and the rights of women, children, and people with disabilities. She has been a UNICEF Australia Goodwill Ambassador since 2007. And before I forget, a shout out to Australia. I see there's two, I don't know if you'd call it provinces, that tune in. And thank you. I see you in my analytics. Now, Antera is an ambulatory wheelchair user with CRPS, which is Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Tara brings advocacy and visibility to issues of disability and chronic pain and the need to normalize mobility aids. And in 2021, she was chosen as a global change maker by Conscious Magazine for her disability and chronic pain activism. 
Now then I think this next one is really special because it's from the city. Oh God, I lived, it was 25 years in and it's still the city I love. And I also love Vancouver, but it's still the city I love. Tara received an honorary citizen award from the city of Victoria for her work on accessibility rights. Okay, so 14 novels under her belt. She has the Pandora English novel series, the Mac Vanderwall series, and we're going to talk about her latest novel in the Billy Walker series, The Ghosts of Paris. Um, and I have a note to myself, I have it written down right here that I want to read The Cobra Queen because I have always been um, I'm, like amazed about the Met Gala. So yes. I, I want to, I want to get that. That's going to be a summer read for sure. So it's Tara, anyways, well, okay. such, a, such a fun book and a fun series. And the Met is like a perfect place to have some crazy paranormal events unfold. Good. So. Good. Well, Tara, welcome, welcome back, and congratulations on writing this classic novel. And it's great reading about Billy and her assistant Sam, and it's a great cast. Thank you for coming back. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate um, your support, Joanna, and the support for the series. Um, the Ghosts of Paris follows on from The War Widow, which we talked about last um, time we had a chat. And it was just such a pleasure to return to Billy Walker's world. Um, in this book, it's 1947. So the previous book was set in 1946. And I'm happy to say I just signed another two-book deal with HarperCollins Australia for another two. And I know HarperCollins Canada have a, at least another one that they've signed up for as well. And that just means um, thanks to readers' support and support from people like you, I'm actually able to stay in Billy's world and continue with her story. And that's just, it's so important to me um, as a writer and as a person. So thank you. Good. Oh, great. <laughs> well, the cover the cover, um, the model in that red coat, which I wish I had. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it gorgeous? That's um, Ida von Munster. Um, so Ida von Munster is not only a model, but she's also an artist and photographer. And so the things I like about her, I've, I've admired her for a long time, but she is really... Um, like me, obsessed with the 1940s and obsessed with that era and gets the details so right. So she isn't just appearing in a photo that someone else is dressing her and, you know, having the vision. She is the one with the vision. And she is the one who's curating, you know, her wardrobe and creating the looks. And there's a real art to that. So I think she's a standout and she is a wonderful Billy Walker for the covers. It's the same model um, that was on the previous co cover for The War Widow. And being able to to connect with her and have her agree to be this this cover version of Billy Walker is just a, 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 such a joy. Um, and, and the red uh, coat is very new look, that Christian Dior uh, style that really turned fashion on its head in 1947. So perfectly timed for this novel and this particular moment in history. Wow. Wow. Oh, it And her her... Oh, how her hair is set with those mm -hmm. 
that rolling those curl i i don't know how you pronounce that but it, how it is set too she so. looks like she's got victory rolls and i know that I, i've done victory rolls on myself before there's so much fun to do um i've experimented with a lot of the things that our foremothers would have done during the period including like wet setting my hair and creating um diy hair setting lotions from like sugar and beer and things like that um my hair is really thick and quite long so it's a little bit challenging to to just get the time to do a full wet set because it takes forever to dry but when you do it it's amazing because it lasts the curls last and every time you brush it, it just looks silkier and nicer and just as curly so it gives us a little bit of an insight into how uh, the people in this era had very little, um, there are very little frills in their lives, but they could do things like wet set their hair with some products from the kitchen, if they had a kitchen, you know, at that stage, mm -hmm. and and some pins. And after that, that could keep them looking, you know, fashionable for a week or two. They wouldn't often have access to shampoo or even running water sometimes, but they did a lot with a tube of lipstick and, um, you know, these home uh, sort of solutions for beauty products like beetroot on the cheeks, uh, gravy on the legs to try to get the effect of stockings, um, you know, drawing up the back of the leg with an eye pencil, like all of that stuff, because it, it was a time where people were trying to hang on to their identity in a really difficult world. And that um, idea of like the feminine was still very strong at that point. And that's how a lot of women achieved that. That, that look yeah okay okay <laughs> okay so let's start from the beginning with that prologue. <laughs> <laughs> it's stellar um and it it makes me think of discussions I've had with authors about starting a novel as late as possible in the story mm. and it, I'm wondering how did you decide to start with that prologue because that prologue you just you read it and you're just I was like good lord holy smokes like hold on we're going for a ride <laughs> yeah buckle up you know yeah. um I'm hoping that you get that feeling when you read these books this sort of buckle up and, and then of course um you do need to temper that with letting people breathe a little that that prologue is very intense it is set in a war zone and conflict in 1944 that particular scene which is relevant to the characters and their journeys in the, the ghosts of paris and um you know conflict zones are terrifying yeah like it's terrifying and we can kind of forget what it's like i think um I'm particularly interested in the way ordinary people dealt with extraordinary times. And I think that without giving anything away about the prologue, you can go online and, uh, online and read it actually. So I won't, I won't give away what can happen, but readers can go and look it up if they just want to have that taste and see if they want to dive in some more. But I think it's really important to throw people into the action right at the start. And then and that's a style I've had for maybe 22 years now um, over the last 14 books. And then often in chapter one, I kind of, I settle, there's sort of like a new baseline. I'm like, okay, here we are. You know, now let's start building towards like, what was that? What did it mean for the plot and the characters? And kind of then starting the roller coaster ride. That's, you know, that that kind of uh, um, 
tighter and tighter, pulling the thread, pulling the thread, and then just bam, you know, I want to get that sense of um, taking people on a on a journey. And I do like to throw them in the deep end in the prologue. So never skip a prologue, folks. No. Some people talk about skipping a prologue, and I was like, what? You really? what? Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. It's not the same as a foreword. I also don't think you should skip those, but it is essential to the story. So if you're reading The Ghosts of Paris, buckle up from page one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So how about if you could briefly, you know, tell our author's what Billy is up to now, and if you would mind to do a short reading. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, I'm not going to read that prologue. It's so delicious and um, devastating and authentic to the time, but I will pick up on chapter one, where I'm going to ease you in a little bit to Billy's world. If you've read The War Widow, um, you can read these books independently. As always, I recommend, you know, try to read them in order if you can, but you don't have to. You're not going to get lost or, you know, hopefully you'll just get into Billy's world and feel immersed in it, whether you know the previous story yet or not. But those who have read it will recognize Billy, her office, and her lucky strike here. So, chapter one, Sydney, Australia, 1947. On May Day, the client walked into the offices of B. Walker Private Inquiries, announced by a faint buzzer. Billy Walker heard this from her position on her sixth-floor balcony, where she was smoking a lucky strike and regarding, with a well-honed emotional detachment, the safety bridge that connected Daking House to Station House. She heard the door, heard the little buzzer, heard her secretary come assistant welcome the stranger, their voices muffled by the closed connecting door, and took a long drag. On the slow exhale, smoke floated from Billy's red lips, creating a temporary haze across her view of the city streets. Cigarette dangling, Billy turned, closed the balcony doors behind her, and walked to the oval mirror on the wall inside her office. She checked her emerald tilt hat and red lipstick in one quick and practiced movement regarding the steady blue-green eyes staring back back at her in the reflection, and satisfied, made for the corner of her wide wooden desk and stubbed out the last of her fag. Smoke drifted upward, settling in the air. The Bakelite clock above her door informed her that this potential client was right on time. This one had made an appointment though Billy had not been furnished with any information regarding the nature of her query, complaint, or troubles, only a surname. Things having improved at Billy's humble agency in recent months, Ms. Walker, the B of B. Walker Private Inquiries, and the principal agent no longer had to wait out long days for the phone to ring or a knock on the door, and for the moment at least, did not need to contemplate the empty walnut chairs in the small waiting room and find odd jobs for her secretary to do. Business was booming for Sydney's most famous, or was it infamous, female inquiry agent. So we see Billy in her office. These are the uh, former offices of her late father. And in The War Widow, she's only just opened the agency, reopened that agency after her father has passed on. She was a war reporter during World War II. She was a really, you know, one of those many brave, amazing, ordinary people who did extraordinary things in that time. 
And so it's quite natural for her to uh, pick up her father's work. And she needed to get that office, you know, going, the agency going. And the events that take place in The War Widow kind of made her infamous, like front page material, because she ended up tied up with a uh, Nazi war criminal who was operating out of Australia. That's not giving quite too much away. Um, And so in this book, we see that actually things are humming along a bit. She's starting to find her feet. Her agency is starting to work for her. Um, But of course, being the ghosts of Paris, we know that she is being beckoned back to those mysteries that she has not been able to solve in her own life. Um, And that that is where we jump off. Cool. 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 Okay. So... What inspired you? Uh, I'm just I'm thinking ahead here with mm. some of the issues you you deal with here. Yeah. So, what inspired? What was your first? I guess what if inspiration with this mm. with this book? Well, with the whole series, I found that it centers on Billy Walker. It centers on this character, and she arrived quite like fully formed. Uh, to me, um, springing as she did from, you know, stories I was hearing as a child about World War II, again, about ordinary people. So not, you know, Hitler or Churchill and, you know, the the generals who are doing those, those, you know, important big pieces, but rather the effect of war on ordinary folks, the folks we don't usually hear about. And Billy kind of sprang from that and, you know, hard-boiled of the time and the women of film noir, and um, but subverting all of those things, subverting, you know, I love the hard-boiled genre and I love noir, but women don't tend to come up very well, right? It's going to be all about the male grizzled detective and the women are going to be a victim. There could be a dead body at the beginning or there'll be a femme fatale ends up killed at the end uh, for her sins of, you know, being attractive or whatever, <laughs> whatever this sin yeah. was, you know, um, being adulterous or whatever, you know, horrible sin um, they were focused on in in those books. So so it was really about her. And what we see with the war widow is that she has these mysteries in her own life. I mean, she is hired generally by the women of Sydney. They come knocking on her door, Sydney, Australia, to um to get help out of marriages. Um she hates divorce work, but it is the bread and butter of um, a private investigator, still today to an extent, but certainly back in the 40s when uh, divorce law meant that, you know, you could get a divorce, but it was very hard to get and you needed to get photographic evidence of adultery or some other, you know, there weren't many, there wasn't a lot of grounds for divorce and that was one of them. And so if you felt that, you know, if you'd been abandoned and your husband was cheating on someone, it wasn't enough to say so. It wasn't enough for there to be witnesses. You needed a private inquiry agent to get documentation of it. And that's the sort of work that Billy ends up getting pulled into. Yeah. And how else can they escape these, you know, sometimes abusive and certainly unhappy um, marriages? So she's doing that for these other women. She's making her way in the world, but she has this question of, what happened to her own husband, Jack Rake? They got married um, during World War II as one of those makeshift weddings, you know, one of those intense relationships, as you can imagine, being out in the field, him, a photojournalist, her, a reporter, covering the war, covering these Nazi war crimes. 
And then he he died. She became a war widow. But she's never quite lost hope that, you know, because they, they don't know what happened to him exactly. He's been presumed dead. And so The Ghosts of Paris is really about the next step in her natural journey, you know, um, those questions about what's happening in her own <laughs> world. Um, she can't ignore them anymore. The ghosts of Paris are beckoning and she ends up um, traveling to London and Paris on a case. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking how she gets there. <laughs> <That's awesome>. yeah. <laughs> it was hard traveling back then. It was uh, a lot like today's travel. Yeah. So this book touches, like, you know, you're talking and I'm just shaking my head thinking crazy times in, about you needed the proof, right? Yeah. And, you know, you write about it. There's a few issues in this book, mm. you know, like women are kind of regarded. Now, I hope I said this, I was thinking as like a a side plate, you know, like mm-hmm. just something on the side, you know, and, and I like how you, from the beginning, you tackle the issue of um, how insane it was mm. at that time that gay relationships were outlawed. Like, yes. Oh. That's right. And until quite recently, and in fact, there, there are places in the world where it is still outlawed and, and you know, there's the death penalty. So we do live in a world where that is still a major issue. And um as you know, I've been involved in human rights advocacy for a couple of decades now, and I think you know it, this is fiction, and I hope entertaining. I mean, that's what it's about. I want to take you on a ride, like yeah. buckle up, let's go yeah. on this adventure together. I want it to be an enjoyable experience, even though I'm touching on issues that are quite difficult, like World War II and the Holocaust, and the you know the effects of these really uh, traumatic and difficult historical times. But I can't touch on that without looking at human rights because they played a major role, I think, in every conflict, but in World War II, absolutely. And I can't look at human rights without looking at how different groups of people were impacted. So in World War um, II, of course, the Holocaust and that uh, dehumanization of the Jewish population and other populations that were not considered to be uh, ideal, you know, that Nazi propaganda, that Nazi idea of of um, weeding out and killing off, um, you know, inferior groups of people. I mean, it's just, it, it's like that type of thinking is really at the root of so much of the evil in the world. Yeah. Um, and of course, people who were not heterosexual, or for that matter, cisgender didn't fit into those norms those those people suffered enormously under the Nazis, and they still suffer today. Um, but there were laws then as well that would, um, you know, that could see someone jailed for homosexuality. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, I think it's important to touch on those realities yeah. in this series. Again, you know, it's a fun, fast-paced story, I hope, or at the very least you feel like, you know, you're living in Billy's world, you're, you know, you're kind of under her wing, you know, you're going to get through this, whatever she comes up against. But I think it's really important to show the context. And it just makes for, I think, better sh- storytelling mm-hmm. to look at how people, different people were impacted, as opposed to the same people we usually focus on 
in World War II and post-World War II fiction. Yeah. It's usually, you know, it's a soldier. It's yeah. a political leader. Um, the big, the generals we see in the statues, those are the people we tend to focus on. But, but no, I'm interested in the ordinary folks and yeah. what, how they survived, how their resilience, um, you know, how, how they had that resilience and also what we can, you know, the ways we can kind of tie that to issues today and see how far we've come and how far we haven't in some respects as well. Yeah. Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the scene without giving too much away mm. when they're still in, when they're in London mm-hmm. and they go to Australia house. Yeah. And that conversation she has mm. and it's um, kind of like the boys club. Yes. And that whole conversation. <laughs> and I, it is so like your writing is just it's so good. Right? Oh, <laughs> you're sitting there, like it's sitting there, right? Like you're, you're just. I feel like I'm when I was reading the dialogue. It was like it was this tense. Like just, you're, boom, boom, just watching it. them and knowing that yeah. Billy, knowing that these conversations happened, and we know that they did, and in some places still do, and that Billy Walker, particularly after a very long and difficult flight yes. on a converted bomber, Lancastrian, after that she isn't as good at playing nice. Uh, I mean, she's not a character who really wants to play nice, but she knows professionally to get the most out of the people she's around. She often has to kind of, um, you know, get things from them by being charming, by doing her professional smile. It's like, it's a strategy. And here she's just like, strategies out the window. She's not happy. Like, she's finding it really hard to restrain herself as they, as these men talk and they're talking about issues that again, uh, resonate today with, you know, with racism, with, um, you know, a a woman's place in uh, the world and in the workplace and so on. And um, yeah, we haven't actually seen the end of these issues, unfortunately. So it's, it's fun to throw Billy into it because I'm like, I want her to deal with them. (laughs) I want to see what she does. Yeah. And it's, it's great when she finally, it's not that she snaps, but she just, she tells the truth and you're like, yes. Yeah, you're just like, oh, thank goodness someone's saying this. Like, oh, Billy, you know, we can count on Billy because she's just going to be like, nah. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is not, not on. This isn't, this isn't good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> can't handle anymore hearing this. Yeah. So I'm curious with your, okay. I'm thinking about my own writing practice. Okay. So I'm working on book three. Okay. With my series. And I'm working on it. And, and, you know, some days I think, okay, yeah, I think this will be the last book in the series. And I'm working on rewrites. And then midway through, you know, it's like I get this unexpected character who refuses to die. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. I'm keeping you. Don't worry. And then (laughs) I get this spark for a new idea, another idea. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're not done with this. We're not done with this, with this series. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, when did Tara get the idea? Like, did it come to you when you were working on the first book or like right out of the gate? Did you know that with, like you said, this character has come to you like fully developed and and just ready to take on the world. Like, did you know from the outset that 
we're, we're going for a few books and a, and a good, good, good ride. Um, that's what I was hoping for. I was, I had a series with Mac Vanderwall that you mentioned um, in your lovely introduction. Thank you. Um, and that was my contemporary crime thriller series. It was like my first novel was called Fetish. It had Mac Vanderwall in it. I was like 23 when I wrote it. And, you know, in some ways it's weird that it did so well. It, it really connected with a lot of people, particularly in Australia and places like Germany and Brazil and like <laughs> fans of Mac kind of all around. Um, but it's weird because now I'm much older and I'm like kind of going, oh, I don't want you to read my debut novel. Like I hope that I've developed as an author. Right. Yeah. But the thing is that character was really living in me for about a decade when I was writing that series. And then I needed to figure out who's my next, like, who, who is she? I knew it would be an amazing kick-ass female character, but who is she? And so when Billy arrived fully formed, I recognized that this was her, that, um, you know, the muse had been busy and she'd, um, she'd developed this character from, from within me and from these various sources of inspiration. But there's also the real world, so to speak. You know, there's our fictional worlds, but we also need to have that publisher support and reader support. And thankfully, that's all been there as well. So that's the dream. Um, it's been 22 years, 23. Oh, my gosh. 23 years for me as a published author. And I do tend to write in series. Good. I've written um, – This is, she's my third heroine of a series. I've written two nonfiction books as well, and they're a very separate kind of a approach. Mm -hmm. But I guess I just really find the characters fascinating and their character arc is part of my motivation for writing. So naturally a series just that's how it works. Cause I'm all about yeah. what she what's happening for that character and I can't finish it in one book. Like yeah. I can make some interesting plotting maybe in a book, but I can't have the whole journey of that character. So I guess I wanted to find who my new character was. And I took quite a number of years to find that there was a gap um, when I was trying to think, you know, and there she was, she arrived and it was like, she'd been there the whole time waiting and she had a lot to say. And she was a character I've um, I've never had to rewrite. Like, I know we all edit and we change things in our books, but I've never had to rewrite her. I never had to kind of go back and change things about her or change things she said. She was like, ready. Cool. It's like, I'm here. And, you know, the plot or maybe some secondary characters might change, but she was like, no, I'm here. And so um, whenever she flows out onto the page, she's she's ready to go. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I've never, geez, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of what that feeling must have been like when you, mm -hmm. when she arrived, and you're yeah. like, okay, I got, like that feeling, I've, I've yeah. got this character. Right? Yeah, I've got it, and I had been immersing myself in 1940s vintage for a little while, actually, before she arrived, and it was all preparation, it was like, um, I'm fascinated by that period of history. I was raised on stories about that period in history. For some reason, I wasn't writing about that period in history, though. And then suddenly I was. She arrived and she was like, this is this is what you're doing. Um, but all that foreshadowing was so obvious now. You know, I look back and go like, okay, you were, 
really interested in this. I mean, me and film noir, yes, you know, like there's a really strong connection there for me. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story about my Oma and Opa in World War II. They they um, survived occupied Holland when the Nazis um, occupied where their village was called Neumannsdorp. Yeah. And um, the Nazis came in and they took my Opa um, into forced slave labor mm-hmm. as a, you know, quote unquote, able-bodied man. That's what they did with these Dutchmen and uh, his Jewish neighbors and friends got taken to, you know, another camp and were never seen again. But he had young children with my Oma. That's my granddad and grandma in uh, Dutch. And um, my Oma used to cycle across Holland, smuggling flour and sugar in the hollows of her bicycle to get those ingredients to my Opa in this munitions factory in Berlin where he was um, a slave laborer. And he was a baker by trade. So what he was doing is taking those ingredients and baking bread in the munitions ovens to bribe the foreman, the the German foreman. And so he bribed this Nazi foreman and struck up a bit of a connection with him. And it worked. And eventually, because he liked that bread so much and he thought this guy was, yeah, he was pretty good for a duchy, you know, he got given a day pass to, um, to see his family outside of the gates and he took that opportunity and fled. Oh. So he commandeered a uh, horse and cart yeah. and crossed a checkpoint through a field with his ho- horse and cart. And he would say that, that, you know, there were these guards there with guns. And he thought, that's it. I'm going to get shot and this will be all over. But they didn't kill him. They didn't shoot. I think they just didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And he got to the other side and he abandoned the horse and the cart in a field and let them go there, let the horse go on its way. And he walked on foot the rest of the way, all the way back to his hometown, which would have taken um, nights, night after night, because he did it at, at cover of darkness yeah. and made it back to his family. And I heard these stories about how, you know, there was like a, a resistance group and they would have um, radio messages they'd try to get out. And so my Oma was at home with his young kids listening to the radio to try to get um, information about her husband and see if there were any messages from him. And, you know, like just thinking of these ordinary people and what they did. So extraordinary. And I was raised on that. So the 1940s has just been kind of drawing me in really my whole life. And now I get the privilege of writing about it. That's awesome. (laughs) I I think of some synchronicity there when you're talking about how much you enjoy the 1940s and and how Billy comes to you and that, and your Oma and Opa. I'm married to a Dutchman. So when you were saying that, I don't know they are you know right? and opa are exactly yeah, exactly yeah. and oma and opa are also the the words in german as well and so you can see it's it's there's so much uh connection between these groups of people and then in war you have these leaders making decisions and tearing people apart right yes yeah. yeah it's yeah. very it's very tragic and um the the long shadow of war is still continuing today, even just from this conflict, let alone the ones that have come since. And, and that's in the book, because when um, Billy arrives in London, the UK, she you you write that, how mm. she's looking at what has happened, right? Yeah. 
I so, mean, London, London took a real battering. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, re they really did. Um, so many people died. So many buildings were bombed and it changed the landscape of, of London forever, but also changed the lives of it, all the people everywhere in Europe and in Eastern Europe and all of these areas, some of which we think about when we think about World War II and some of which we don't kind of include in our storytelling, but the impact is there. Okay. Okay. So you have a definite voice with the narration. Um, like each character, they have their individual voices. Um, but there's a, you have a definite voice. And I'm curious, because like I said, I, I am going to read The Cobra Queen because I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in the fashion. So be, for me, I'm curious to see the voice in The Cobra Queen, knowing your, the voice you have with Billy Walker. Would you say the voice of your narration with Billy Walker, a kind of symbol is, is to reflect the times or yes, no, or that's just how, that's just, that's Billy. Like, most of all, that's just Billy, but I also do work hard to try to capture the essence of the time as much as I can. Um, you know, some people will read the series and go, oh, she's very progressive for her day. And I'm like, yes, she is. But she also existed. Characters like individuals like this existed, people who felt this way and did things like this. It's just that they weren't the norm. So she's not necessary. She's not an example of maybe an well, she is an everyday person in a way, but she's also forced into extraordinary circumstances. So Billy is Billy, and she's going to do things as Billy is going to do, as I have learned. I can't make her do anything. She does. She decides what she wants to do. But I am trying to set her in a current, certain context. And there's, you know, the limitations of that are kind of a fun challenge, actually. Uh, historical fiction is really challenging because you have to get those details right. She can't just pick up a phone. It has to be like, what's the phone? And can she have a line in that room? And did it, was it, did that hotel have individual phones in the rooms? Oh, yes, they did. But that was really, um, uh, a luxury at the time. They were one of very few hotels at the time that had that, you know, all of these other things come from the smallest detail that you're writing. In terms of my other work, you'll see lots of parallels because of Tara Moss, the author, who I am, obviously some of that comes through. That's true for every author. But I'm hoping that each of the characters has their own voice and each of the books has their own world. The world yeah. building is specific to that. Yeah, you'll see some similarities. I've got this... Um, quirk where instead of saying oh god it's always oh goddess or good goddess is okay. the you know what the characters will say good goddess yeah. and that's like a taramossism okay. and i've sometimes had people say to me oh they've done this typo it says good goddess in there and i'm like yeah it does because that's like such a taramossism yeah. um but it's appropriate to those characters you'll find strong central female characters that are propelling the plot forward that are women of action. Yeah. That is what you're going to find in one of my books. Okay. But I hope the voices are individual and Pandora English. That series is a lot um, lighter and more fun. Like, I don't think this is heavy. I don't think the ghost no. of Paris is like heavy, but um, there's a playfulness. Uh, there's a young playfulness in the Pandora English series. And with that character, that is a little bit different. And then there's a darkness in the Mac Vanderwall crime series that's a little bit different too. So, yeah, they all have their own flavor. 
Cool. <laughs> okay. So your research, I remember from our last podcast, your research is impeccable. And, and what you have also put yourself through for <laughs> research. Um, so I have to admit, um, in The Ghosts of Paris, first thing, a, I, I'm just going to list three things here. As I'm reading this novel, I am wondering whether, as I'm reading, I'm thinking, okay, did Tara Moss go into an Avro Lancastrian plane <laughs> in her research? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was surprised to learn that models in the 40s were referred to as like mannequins. Oh, yeah. <gasps> and then like the Strand Palace where she stays in 1947. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. Okay, so talk to me a bit about those three. Have you flown in an Avril Lancastrian plane? <laughs> well, I've done loops of uh, over the Sydney Opera House with the roulettes, with the RAAAF, um, doing 4.5 Gs, but I have not been in an Avril Lancastrian plane. I don't think there's a lot of them that are airborne these days, okay. but this was an authentic thing that was done at the time. So Qantas, which is an airline that's still around today, um, that was initially uh, what Queen, Queensland and Northern Territories airline service or air service. They're now Australia-wide and they travel internationally, but they did what a lot of um, airlines and countries around the world did, which was like, what do we do with all these warplanes? The ones that were still in one piece, they converted. And they did this with ships as well. So you found that there were like cruise ships that became warships and then warships that became cruise ships again. You know, people were using... People were just dealing with and adapting to what was happening in the world. So the Avro Lancastrian was mostly a male service plane. I mean, that was where people were not flying all over the world directly after the war, uh, for the most part. But postage was and mail was. So <laughs> she and Sam are stuck in this converted warplane, which is mostly filled with mail, but has a few seats. And that was like genuinely how people traveled at that time. It was how you could get there. Unless you wanted to go by boat, which would take months, right? So yeah, seated sideways in these funny seats and um, you're mostly, yeah, you're kind of like up against the side of the the curved plane. So even standing upright was really tricky and they were loud and not pressurized. So depending on where, you know, where you were traveling, if you're going over a mountain or something like over a pass, everybody was wearing oxygen masks for a long period as they were going through those areas. So uh, they were notoriously loud and headache inducing for days. And, um, yeah, that's all completely authentic. But I guess I'm kind of grateful I haven't actually had to travel like that personally. Because <laughs> uh, that that yeah, it would be not fun. Maybe with Billy and Sam, I'd find a, I'd find a, it would be pretty fun. But otherwise, no. <laughs> okay. Because okay. I have to admit, I was wondering, I thought, okay, did she go up in one of these planes? Because it's so authentic. Okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I really am obsessed with detail, Joanna. I I research and research and research some more. I get um, other experts on board, like fashion historians and researchers to check things and just like make sure as much as is humanly possible. You know, maybe there are mistakes I haven't caught yet and I'll hear about them at some stage, but I'm kind of 
glad that there's so much in each of the books that has been researched and I haven't had people like calling me out going, yeah, you know, that's completely wrong, right? <laughs> and I would have been, I'd be mortified because I, I check everything so carefully. And I hope that gives you a sense of like being there. Because that's ultimately what you want to do as an author. Yeah, yeah. And okay. Also, like Billy <laughs> she mm-hmm. and then Sam get off this plane. And there are, I have, there are so many favorite scenes. Mm. One is when she's checking in at the hotel. Okay. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, it, yeah. and then another, like before she checks in and um, she's talking with her mom, like she has to tell, she's telling her mom that Ella, right. That yes. she's going to London and Ella is reading the flight itinerary. <laughs> And all those stops and Billy's response, like, it is funny, funny, yeah. right? And I'm like, <laughs> there's always humor when I put Billy and her mom together. Okay. And Ella, Ella and Alma, I love as, as a pair, like Alma is um, Ella's ladies maid. So those yeah. who haven't read the series will, will not necessarily know that, um, Billy's mother is a baroness, but kind of has lost all her money. So she, <laughs> she's, you know, every, she's one of those women who will wear her beaded or sequined chaparelli gown, like couture every night for dinner. She dresses for dinner and she's got her hair done just so, and she needs her little sip of sherry, but she's in this apartment now, uh, this, this flat in, in Sydney where she once had, you know, once lived in a mansion with staff. Right. But um, her lady's maid is her constant companion, and the two just will never be separated. So they um, they are a really fun pair and kind of opposites. And then Billy, so Ella's daughter, her only child, they're a good representation in a way of two different generations of women who are resilient and adapting to really changing and difficult circumstances. And that that's funny like they're it's it's lovely and i love their chemistry and and their emotion towards each other but it's also really funny because ella's going to be just like come on you know one of these you know don't you see the way the young men look at you you should take one of them up on it and she's like come on get yourself another husband you know all of that because of course she would be yeah and um billy's this sort of she's a woman of the forties, you know, this is when she came into her own and she, she loves her independence and she, yes, she loves her, her husband who's passed. um, But she also loves being a private investigator. She's not focused on like wanting to be someone's wife, you know, and uh, in a way, Ella wasn't really that person anyway. She was a super independent woman herself for her time. So I loved having these, this sort of intergenerational relationships that speak to certain types of people from that time. These women who are like so independent and they give um, the detective inspector, Hank Cooper, like a run for his money every time he's in contact with them, right? It's like, Oh my God, the Walker women look out. Right. But, um, but they do kind of represent different generations in a way. And I love that about them and naturally humor always springs from those you know like you can't put them together without seeing the way they kind of push each other's buttons yeah because you know i was wondering 
I'm just thinking, you know, it's, I, I wonder because my first two, I have a mother who's my heroine's mother. She's a ghost actually. So, but prominent in the story. And when I'm writing the third one, I was thinking, okay, well, um, I'm not, Jade's mother's not happening, but this other, I think I said to you, I had this character who's not, who's refusing to die. <laughs> so he has a mother and this mother is coming out. And I, mm-hmm. I was just wondering, you know, like you and I have both lost our mothers. And mm-hmm. I thought, what is it about just these strong mothers coming into our writing, you know, because I didn't think mm-hmm. I would have a mother in this third book. You know, and I, there she uh-huh. is. Priya Hoffman is right there, right? You know, is so. right there. Look, isn't it fascinating? Um, in in my first series, the Mac Vanderwall series, um, Mac has lost her mom, and she's got a strong relationship with her dad, and that's kind of like a mirrors a little bit my own personal uh, journey. And in fact, to the point where my dad was often like, people would ask if the character, this uh, this character who was like an FBI agent, um, you know, is that like your dad or like this okay. cop? Is this like your dad? And I'm like, no, he sells fridges and stoves. You know, he's like works in a department store. My dad used to love it. He'd be like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm that tough guy from the book, right? Yeah. With Pandora English, um, she's an orphan and she's got this really strong female um guiding figure who is her great aunt Celia. So strong female figure, a mother figure kind of, but not really. She's anyway, she's kind of like that godmother or, you know, and then with this, you've got Ella and it's interesting because in each scenario, there's elements of my experience in there, but also something else because I've been really fortunate to have those guiding figures in my life. My mother passed away when I was 16, which is a long time ago now, but, and she's still quite present to me, but there were also guiding figures who kind of took on the role of guardian for me as a young person. My dad had to be kind of mother and father, but also, you know, the, the house I'm staying in right now is I'm between residences we've bought another house but it's not available yet because there are tenants i'm staying with you know someone i think of as my auntie linda but she was a high school teacher who um, met me when she was teaching me and found out about what was happening to my mom through my diary which was written for a psychology class so for the psych class we were encouraged to write a page about kind of what we were what was going on it was going to be remain private between us and the teacher and so I wrote about what was happening and she became aware that my mom was in hospital and she had cancer and she became then aware also that she'd passed. And she was one of those people who just stepped straight in and we've been really closely bonded since. Wow. So you never quite know where family will come from in this case. She's yeah. not blood family, but she's family. So a little bit like Alma is maybe to to Billy. She just... She came into their lives and you can't tell me that Alma is less family than Ella. You know, these two women are are part of Billy's whole world and raising her really from the time she was a child. And 
So yeah, it, it's interesting how those things can work and find their way into our work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now you write about serious topics and, um, you know, the, the gay, how gay relationships were regarded in 1947. And you're writing about the Second World War. And I, I just, I have to say that the levity with the humor in the story, it, it was perfect. It's a, a good balance. Thank, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. That's, that's a wonderful compliment. I, I think some of the chemistry between uh, Billy and her mom, but also between Billy and Sam, yeah. like some of those it is what we need. And also just Billy in general, like she can be quite funny. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm very funny, but Billy is a riot, you know? And so <laughs> she, she helps to bring you through those scenes, you know? And I wanted as readers for us to feel we're in good hands. Yeah. And I think having that little bit of humor does help us to deal with the, with the tough stuff, okay. which is, which is there as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Tara, I've kept you for long enough. Just a couple mm -hmm. questions, my favorite. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you and Billy bump into each other <sighs> at the Boomerang Club. Just imagine you see like you just this that conversation. Billy has just come out of that conversation. Okay, what would Billy say to you, and what would be your response back? First of all, I probably would have overheard the conversation she was pulled into with that circle of men in the Boomerang Club because it did become a little bit scandalous there in that moment. So I would have been watching that. I would have handed her a hip flask probably. <laughs> I've just immediately gone nicely handled and just hand her a hip flask. I think that's what I would have to, yeah, nicely handled. And, um, yeah. I would I would offer to show her around London if I had any uh, insider tips and things like that. And really, I just want to be part of her girl gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's excellent. That's excellent. Okay, so what's next? And I was I watched. Um, and forgive me, I cannot remember her name. It, I it it was your very first. It was through the Toronto Library or the Library in Ontario? Oh, yes, with Jennifer Robson. Yeah. Oh, thank you yeah. so much for coming to that. My launch in Canada, the virtual launch with Jennifer Robson. That was wonderful. So I did hear that there are more Billy Watts. And you just said in the very beginning that yeah. there are more, right? So that's that's cool. So I'm is so that excited. Yes. So I was really lucky that. HarperCollins Australia had signed on for two, and then HarperCollins Canada signed on for three. So at least I knew there'd be like at least one more after the Ghosts of Paris. But then in the last month, HarperCollins Australia signed on for like another two. So there's at least going to be four in the series. I would like to think there'll be more than that. And my intention is probably to have each book take place a year or a roughly a year later than the one previous, so that we have the next one happening in 1948, and, and I can move through the social, political circumstances and cultural changes that are happening in each of those years. 
Um, so I am, yeah, I'm already straight into book three with Billy Walker. Um, I've also got a short story coming out. I don't do a lot of short stories, but I couldn't resist this. It's um, an anthology tribute to Cornell Woolrich, the classic um, noir or hard-boiled author. And um, it's based on the story of his that became Rear Window, that Alfred Hitchcock directed, the famous film. So that's based on a Cornell Woolrich short story, and I have reimagined it um, in my Taramos way. Um, and that will come out in Black is the Night, which will, I think it hits shelves in September. So um, those are the things I'm up to right now, in addition to my advocacy work and and keeping all those uh, balls in the air, so to speak. Wow, you're, you're busy, you're busy. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. Okay, well, people, the podcast can be found at jcvartstudio.net. Tara, I will have your social media, your Tara Moss website and your social media in the show notes. Great. And thank you so much for coming, coming, coming back and coming and talking oh, to me. Thank you, Joanna. I really appreciate the opportunity. I so enjoy our discussions and your support of authors and books and love your work. And just thank you. It's been a real privilege. Okay. We'll see you, Tara. Thanks. Okay. Bye.